So this morning we will finish up Romans chapter 4. We'll be looking from verses 18 through 25. In chapter 4, Paul has given several reasons why our justification is by faith and by faith alone. In fact, since justification is the gift from God, it cannot be something that we earn by what we do. And that's what he talks about in the first eight verses. And since Abraham was justified before he was circumcised, then circumcision has no relationship to justification. That was covered in verses 9 through 12. Also from verses 13 through 17, since Abraham was justified centuries before the law was given to Moses, then our justification is not based upon obedience to the law. This morning, verses 18 through 25, we'll see that Abraham was justified because of his faith in God and not because of anything else. We begin with verse number 18. There, uh, Paul writes and he says, In hope against hope, he believed so that he might become a father of many nations according to that which had been spoken. So shall your descendants be. The phrase, in hope against hope, he believed, means that Abraham was past the point of having any natural hope in his own life. His situation was beyond hope, and yet he believed God. Abraham believed God's promise that he would become the father of many nations. The promise was given back in Genesis chapter 15. In Genesis chapter 15, God took him outside and said, Now look towards the heavens and count the stars, if you're able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And then in the very next verse, it says in in verse number 6, Then he believed the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. Abraham believed against all natural hope. In fact, when the promise was ultimately fulfilled in Abraham's life, at least when the promise was beginning to be fulfilled and demonstrated in Abraham's life, Abraham was a hundred years old. A hundred years old. Sarah, whom, whom, uh, whose womb was considered to be dead i mean she was 90 years of age and yet abraham realized that god's ability to fulfill his promise far outweighed his circumstance or his concerns and so he placed his hope in god and in what god had said and promised that he would do I want you to understand that Abraham's faith was not some irrational decision. No, Abraham made a deliberate choice to believe in God and in His Word. Abraham had nothing to hold on to other than the promise of God. But that was enough. And so keep reading. Verses 19 through 21 kind of restate in specific details, the hope that's mentioned in verse number 18. And so we continue, verse 19. It says, without becoming weak in faith, 
he contemplated his own body. Now as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. So Paul declares that Abraham believed God without becoming weak in faith. And so to become weak in faith is to allow uh, allow doubt or or un, unbelief to to undermine what what we believe God to be or his promises to contain see Abraham had been trusting and believing in God for for 25 years acknowledging as as Paul has declared back in verse number 17 Abraham understood that God gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. That's why uh, the writer of Hebrews says that in, in respect to Abraham's faith, in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 through 19, it says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promise was offering up his only begotten son, It was he in whom it was said, In Isaac your descendants shall be called. And he considered that God is able to raise men even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. Abraham lived his life of hope and belief that God would fulfill everything that God promised that he would fulfill, even if it didn't make any sense to him. And so Abraham was confident that God gives life to the dead and he can call back things into being that do not exist. And, and so Paul continues in verse number 20. He says, yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. And being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. So in spite of the humanly impossible situation that Abraham found himself in, it says the text says that Abraham did not waver through unbelief. Abraham did not waver between faith and unbelief as so many people frequently do. I mean, let's be honest. When things are going well in our lives, it's easy for us to trust or to believe in God. But when things get hard, or when life seems to be impossible, it requires intentional focus and determination to continue to walk in faith. In other words, it's not easy. And it's not just going to happen We have to be intentional in what we do and how we live our lives. And as you read through Genesis, it would seem as though Paul was mistaken about Abraham's unwavering faith. Because there are plenty of examples when Abraham uh, obviously was struggling and even when he would sin. But I need you to understand that, that struggling faith is not unbelief. Just as a temptation to sin is not the same thing as sin. The very fact that Abraham was trying to understand how God's promises would be fulfilled in his life indicates that he was at least looking for a way of fulfillment. So weaker faith in in trying times 
Weaker faith might just give in to the temptation to doubt or to walk away. But strong faith refuses to doubt. Strong faith refuses to quit. Strong faith refuses to give in when life and hardships overcome us. So strong faith continues to trust in the promises of God even when the way of fulfillment of those promises might seem impossible to us. We will all face circumstances or seasons in our lives that will truly test us. Have you been there? Anyone been in a test before? Some of us living in a season of testing right now? Instead of becoming bitter when those tests come, we ought to be thankful for the existence of those tests. God's Word says, actually, to consider it joy. You ever have that mindset? In the midst of it, it takes intentional determination to consider it joy in the midst of hardship and struggle. James writes in James chapter 1, he says, To consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Man, those trials, the hardships that we face, that is the proving ground of our faith. It is because of those trials and or those testing seasons that we are able to be developed to, per, to pursue to continue on. That's why we consider it joy. Because it is an opportunity for our faith to be strengthened. For our commitment and our understanding of the greatness of our God to be established. That's why we consider it pure joy. No matter how hard or how difficult life is in this moment, it is a joy opportunity. Therefore, choose joy. Choose joy over bitterness. Choose joy over anger or resentment. Choose joy over hostility. John Calvin wisely observe that believers are never so enlightened that there are no remains of ignorance, nor is the heart so established that there are no misgivings. In other words, what he's saying is that godly faith is not full understanding, but godly faith is full trust. Full confidence in God. Godly faith is the assurance of things that are hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. That's what the writer of Hebrews chapter 11 verse number 1 says. And, and so, so back to Romans 4 verse 21 again. And being fully assured that what God has promised, he says he was able 
to perform. Therefore, it was also credited to him as righteousness. Now, Paul is going to wrap up his illustration of Abraham's life by saying this is why it was credited to him as righteousness. In fact, the entire heart of this passage, or I would even argue the, the, the heart of this chapter, is that in response to Abraham's faith, God graciously credited the Christ, his Savior's righteousness to his account. So on his own, Abraham, just like me and just like every single one of us, on his own, Abraham was totally unable to meet God's standard of perfect divine righteousness. But the good news of salvation, or as Paul puts in, in Romans 1.1, the gospel of God says that God will take the faith In fact, God will take the faith that He Himself enabled the person to have. God will take that faith and He will count that faith as divine righteousness. And so what we'll see in verses 23 to 25 is that there will be this application of the truth about justification in the illustration of Abraham. There'll be this, how how we can apply this truth to the believers in Rome that first heard or or read this letter or, or even better yet, how this truth applies to us today. How, how it applies to, to me and to you. Verse 23 says, Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him. In other words, it's, it's not recorded just to honor Abraham as being a great man of God. No. It was written and recorded so that we might read and understand how we ourselves can become acceptable unto God. It's written and recorded so that we might discover how we might be counted righteous or or justified by believing. And so in verse 24 he says, But for our sake also, to whom it will be credited, as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. So Romans 4, verse 24, pretty much parallels the truth that we find in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. I mean, you're right there. Just flip over a page or two uh, to to Romans 10. These two texts kind of parallel one another. Romans 10, verse number 9 says that if you confess with your mouth, that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Then the explanation, verse number 10, for with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. It's a beautiful reality here. I want you to understand that the resurrection of Jesus is the proof that God has accepted the sacrifice of His Son. Not only has God accepted the sacrifice of His Son, now sinners have the opportunity to be justified without violating God's law or without contradicting the very nature of God. It's all because 
the evidence is given to us in the resurrection of Jesus. Now, uh, the key, of course, is if we believe. Like to Romans 4, verse 24. If we believe. But for our sake also, to whom it will be credited, for those who believe in Him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. There are over 60 references to either faith or unbelief in the book of Romans. More than 60. I'll show you some of these. Look at uh, Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, we see God's saving power and how it is experienced by those who believe. Romans chapter 1, verse number 16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. So God's saving power is experienced by those that believe. If you look in Romans chapter 3, verse number 22, we'll see that His righteousness is given to those who believe. It says there, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ For all those who believe, for there is no distinction. So God's saving power is experienced by those who believe. God's righteousness is given to those who believe. And what we'll see next week is we'll begin to see some of the benefits of the result of our justification. Because chapter 5, verse number 1 tells us that therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The only way that we can experience true peace in life is found in and through faith in Jesus Christ. And so the object of our faith is Jesus who died for us and who rose again. And the key phrase in verse number 24 is who believe in Him. Believe. So the question that we all have to consider is simply, do you believe? Do you believe? If you'll read through the 11th chapter of Hebrews, you'll see it makes it so clear that the only people who have ever been received by God are those who have received Him by faith. That's why it says over and over, by faith, by faith. By faith. In verse number 25, he says, who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. So Jesus died as the sacrificial lamb in order to pay the redemptive price for our sin. He does that so that God might be free to forgive those who respond by faith to that provision. And so his resurrection is so important because the resurrection of Jesus is the proof that God accepts the the sacrifice of his son. Think about it. Jesus has been vindicated by the divine act of resurrection. God demonstrates the innocence of his son by raising him from the dead. I mean, imagine, like, had Jesus died and and not been raised from the dead, then that would indicate that his atonement was insufficient, was not adequate, was not acceptable 
to God. But the fact that God raised him from the dead demonstrates to the world that, that God is satisfied with the perfect work of his son. So in reality, the resurrection of Jesus is the verdict straight from the, the throne of heaven that his atonement is sufficient and the atonement has been made. Therefore, everyone who trusts in Jesus will be able to participate in the benefit of the righteousness of our Lord. That is hugely important for us to understand. And so as Abraham believed that God would do as his promise, we're left to consider, do you believe that the death of our Savior and his resurrection, do you believe that that can cleanse you from your sin? Do you believe that that is enough to make you right with God? That is the only hope of heaven that we have is belief in Him. That's why He's taking detail time after time. It might seem like it's the same message over and over and over and over again. And I'm good with that. Sometimes I think, quite frankly, we should just preach the same message every single week until we actually see that message being lived out in the heart and lives of the congregation. But we just kind of keep on moving through and keep on moving through and keep on moving through. But here it's just over and over and over, and especially in chapter 4. Paul is saying, do you get it? Your justification, in order to be declared righteous before God, then it's not in what you do. It's not in your behavior. It's not in your church attendance. It's not in your uh, religious rituals. It's not in any of that. The only hope that you have of heaven is if you believe in God who raised Jesus from the dead. That's it. That his life, his death, his resurrection is sufficient to atone for the punishment that our sin deserves. And make no mistake, we all deserve to be punished. Every single one of us. We deserve death and condemnation. And there's not a single person that is excused from that reality. We talked about it early in Romans chapter 1. But, but what has God done for, for us? Well, God has given us both a general revelation and a special revelation. The general revelation has been made unto everyone, which means the divine qualities of God can be seen in nature. That's what the text tells us. So nature cries out to the glory of God. And, and that's, not, that's, that's not at all. God also has engraved within the hearts, it's seared in, into the conscience of every man of his awareness and his existence. So there's something outside of us and there's something within every person that bears witness to the existence of the supreme being. But that in and of itself is not enough to lead someone to salvation. So we have a, a general revelation, but there's also this special or specific revelation. The two greatest attributes of this specific revelation are seen in and through the life of Jesus Christ, his son, who gives us the picture-perfect demonstration or example of the divine character of our God. And he also gives us his word. The Holy Word 
this word is so sufficient. It's so beautiful. This word will tell us everything that we need to know about our God. This word declares the ugly reality about each and every one of us. And the ugly reality is that we are wicked. Our heart is deceitful. We choose sin over God. There's not a single one of us on our own that would pursue or chase after God. We have depraved minds that if we don't respond to the Word or to the will of God, that God will ultimately turn us over to depraved mind and will continue to do all kinds of just sinful acts. Like we have no hope of being in the presence of God unless God intercedes on our behalf. And that's the beautiful reality of what he did. He sends his son from the exalted position of heaven into this muck-filled world that we're in who lives as a perfect demonstration of the divine righteousness, the picture-perfect example of who God is. And he gives his life as the sacrifice that our sin deserves because sin demands a sacrifice. We've all sinned. We've all fall short of the glory of God. There's no exceptions. The only hope that we have is in and through Jesus Christ. That's why he says in verse chapter 10, confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, as Lord, your Lord, not his Lord, Jesus as Lord, not just he is the Lord in general. No, that he is your Lord. He is your ruler. He is your master. He is your king. You will bow and submit yourself unto his authority. That's what that's saying. Submit and surrender your life to the authority of our Lord. And it says, if you'll confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. It says, believe in your heart, not believe in your mind. It's not about having a knowledge of that truth. He says, believe in your heart because the heart affects everything that you do. The heart is the wellspring of your life. The heart is the central of who you are and what you do. So so you believe it, not in the mind, but you believe it in the heart so that it controls who you are and what you do. And so when we put our faith in Jesus, then there's the most glorious exchange that occurs. I don't even know if we can fully grasp our minds about just how glorious this exchange is. We put our faith in Jesus. Then God takes all of our sin. Past, present, future. All of our sin. He puts it on Jesus' account. Then he goes above that and beyond. He takes the righteousness of his son. The perfect divine righteousness of of Jesus, and he credits it to us. That's mind-blowing. He credits us with the righteousness of his own son. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse number 21 says, He made him who knew no sin 
to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Question today is, do you believe? Have you confessed Jesus as Lord? Do you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead? Because the resurrection of Jesus is the vindication of the atonement. Do you confess and do you believe? In in just a moment, we'll have our, our time of response. A time that we offer just about each and every week for us to to reflect and to consider uh, what the Word of God has just revealed unto us, to make appropriate decisions where necessary. And in this time, there are decisions that must be made, sins that need to be confessed, commitments that need to be uh, uh, declared. But even today, we get the glorious privilege of participating in communion. And so we don't do this every week, I know that there's a desire among some that we would do this every week. And who knows, perhaps maybe sometime we will. But, but now we have it scheduled periodically throughout the, throughout the year. And, and today's the day. And I love the fact that we're doing this on a holiday weekend. Some people would say, well, why are you doing it on a holiday weekend when, when we have so many people that will be gone? And my answer is, oh, we're doing it on a holiday weekend because we have so many guests that are going to be here. And we want you to be able to participate with this. But, but here's the deal. Communion is available to those that believe in Jesus Christ. So it's not about being a member of First Baptist Kingsland. It's about being a member in the family of God. So that's the first criteria. Do you belong to him? And if so, then communion's potentially available unto you. But there's a warning. Paul makes that warning ever so clear. That we should be very careful in how we partake of this communion. That we don't want to do it in a casual manner. We don't want to do it in a hypocritical fashion. We want to do it with hearts and lives that are fully submitted and surrendered unto God. And in doing so, we declare unto the world and to the rest of the church our identity and our connection with Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, and one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. So in just a moment, we're going to uh, partake of these. If you guys will come and help me out, guys, thank you. We'll have them at the front. We've got three sections for you to, to go to. Uh, feel free to, to come to any one. If one line is getting long, then, then go to another. If you are just physically unable to get out of your pew and walk down here to the front, I suppose if you can make eye contact with me or something, raise your hand, I'll bring it to you. But my thinking is you made it into this building. I think that you can make it 20 or 30 feet to the front to, to take it, but if you can't, then we'll bring it to you. This is what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. It says, I, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he, he took the cup 
And after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Verse 27 says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. And after I pray, the music will play. May you know that the elements are available. You'll be invited and encouraged. You can just come. We're not going to take them together. You don't have to take them back to your seat. Take them up here. Take it back to your seat. Take it with your family. Do whatever it is, how you want to do that. But in just a moment, they're open and available. But before we get to that, will you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, I thank you for your great love for us. I thank you that we can have hope of being in heaven because of our faith and trust in your Son, believing that you raised him from the dead. So Father, I pray that each and every one of us would fully submit and surrender our lives unto you. God, I know that in this room there are those that are outside of relationship with you. And Father, if it be your will, I pray that your spirit would quicken their spirits and and lead them uh, to a place of salvation. For your children in this room, I pray that you would bring unto all of us great conviction of the things that we are doing that we ought not to be doing. Pray that you'd bring great conviction and awareness that there are things that we should be doing that we're failing to do. God, help each and every one of us reflect on our, on our lives and on who we are and what we're doing. And may we make decisions in this moment that would fully honor and glorify you. Father, that's what we want. And then through all things, it's for your glory to be declared. So, Father, we ask your blessings upon this time. We commit this time unto you. In Christ's name I pray.